Hello, and welcome to the December 30th, 2022 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Here we are on the final Friday of the year, and wouldn't you know it, you have an episode of the podcast to go out on. Does it get any better than that? All right, I'll grant you it isn't quite the crystal ball descending in Times Square, but I'm pretty sure you could do worse. As we sit here on the precipice of a new year, I find myself excited to get back to my training and looking forward to my races coming up in just a few short months. Well, my hope is short. I promise the solstice has passed, I can feel the days are getting longer, and summer is approaching. However, I'd like to take a moment right now just to look back at a year that is coming to a close and was filled with a lot of excitement, both for me personally and especially for this podcast. In the past 12 months, this podcast eclipsed its 100th episode, had remarkable guests such as Mike Riley, Tim O'Donnell, Jim Vance, and an Olympian in the form of Joanne Courtney, among so many others. The program has grown in listenership, too, with more than 500 subscribers now on Apple Podcasts alone. I am so grateful to all of you for helping get the word out about the show and continuing to let others know that you enjoy it and that it's worthwhile having a listen to. Without your support, there's no way this program could have grown to the place that it is at today and would not be able to continue to grow to where I hope that it can get to in the future. There really are so many triathlon podcasts out there right now, and I'm sure that you'll agree not all of them are at the same level of quality. Many are unfortunately about self-promotion or about promoting products or services, and there are a few, like this one I hope, that are focused on educating and bringing an unbiased view to athletes on how they can improve their own training, racing, and recovery in this very challenging and addictive and very enjoyable sport. Now, I don't pretend to have the best program for triathletes, nor do I think that this program can't improve. And that's why I count on you, my listeners, to let me know what you want and what you like and don't like about the program in its current form. For the new year, I'm asking any and all of you to challenge me as the host of this podcast to be even better. Send me an email, drop a comment in the private Facebook group, or reach out to me in any of the social media channels that I'm available on and let me know what you like, what you don't like, or would like to see changed about this program so that it can better serve you in the future. As much as possible, I would love for this podcast to be the best one out there and that I can make it for you and new listeners to appreciate as much as possible in 2023. My own personal resolution for this podcast is to make it onto one of the myriad lists of best triathlon podcasts that you should give a listen to in 2024, because right now, I'm not on those lists for 2023, and frankly, I think I should be. What do you think? Let me know. As we close out 2022 and I head towards my 150th episode, I do want to thank you once again for being along with me challenging me and for helping this program be as good as it has been and for hopefully being even better in the future. So here's to all of you a happy and healthy multi-sport new year. On the show today, I'm going to look at an issue that has been a concern for older athletes for a little while now, and that is the question of whether or not exercising at too high of a volume and intensity can actually be bad for your health. We have long known that exercise is a huge benefit for a healthy lifestyle, but there's been a growing body of research that for older athletes anyway, too much of a good thing might just be not so much of a good thing after all. Recently, a paper out of Europe examined whether or not this could also be true for younger athletes, specifically those who train at the highest volumes and intensities, Olympic athletes. What they found was definitely concerning, especially in light of the recent conversation that I had with professional triathlete Tim O'Donnell, and that segment is coming up shortly. After that, I'm joined by nutritionist and CEO of the nutrition app Fuel In, Scott Tyndall. Scott has quite a resume, including being an advisory board member for nutrition for Ironman, and he joins me to talk about his philosophy for nutrition for endurance sport, among other things to add to the growing number of experts that I've had the pleasure to talk to on this very interesting and continually somewhat perplexing subject. That conversation is going to be in just a little bit. 
Before all of that, I want to take a moment for the final time in 2022 to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided for that about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments to come out uh, just about every month. Most recently, just such an episode came out with an additional conversation between me and Coach Jim Vance, who was heard on episode 106. In our bonus conversation, we talked about how Jim manages an athlete like Ben Canute to victory at the highest level, even when he has a season hampered by illness and injury like he did this year. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift in the form of a pretty cool Boko Tridoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, thanks in advance just for considering. If you are a long-time listener of this podcast, then you are well aware of the fact that exercise is good for your health. I know that this doesn't come as much of a surprise for any of you listening, but for several decades now, the benefit of exercise has been appreciated and widely espoused by not just me, but all of my colleagues in the medical community. And let's face it, this is for very good reason. Compared to sedentary individuals, those who exercise regularly, even for brief durations and even at low intensity, demonstrate lower levels of chronic disease, higher quality of life, and lower all-cause mortality at a younger age, leading to a longer overall life expectancy. These benefits of exercise are really irrefutable, and a big reason why recreational pursuits like triathlon have become as popular as they are. However, I don't think I'm revealing any hidden truth either when I say that exercise does have its potential dark side. We are all far too familiar with the tragic deaths that occur in endurance events such as marathons or triathlons. I myself have talked on this podcast far too often of the dangers of sudden cardiac events during the swim, and just recently had as my guest one Timothy O'Donnell, who remains the poster child for how even the most fit people are at risk of heart problems, even if they exercise regularly. Other professional sports are not immune either. There have been high-profile incidents in all kinds of sports around the world, such as when Danish soccer player Christian Eriksen collapsed in a very high-profile event that was filmed on television on the field during a match. And National Hockey League player, also on television, Rich Peverly of the Dallas Stars, he suffered a cardiac arrest while on the bench between shifts, and thankfully, in both cases, the players were resuscitated and survived. Over time, Researchers have come to determine that while exercise can confer benefits up to a point, there may be a tipping point after which the benefits of exercise diminish or even become deleterious. Put simply, too intense exercise at too high a volume, rather than being protective to the heart, may result in changes to the cardiovascular system that actually confer risk. And this kind of exercise paradox is often referred to as a reverse J-curve. If you'll indulge me for a moment and try to visualize something, I want you to imagine a simple graph. On the y-axis is the risk of all-cause mortality, so that's the vertical axis. So in this case, zero would mean no difference in all-cause mortality between a control group and an experimental group. Anything positive on the vertical axis means that the intervention has a higher risk of mortality than the control group. On the x-axis, or the horizontal axis, is going to be the dose of the intervention. So the further you go to the right, the higher the dose. Let's use an easy example to visualize smoking. As we increase the number of cigarettes smoked per day, as we go further to the right on the horizontal, the risk of all-cause mortality is going to rise in comparison to a control group of people who do not smoke. So in other words, you can imagine a line that starts at zero, and as you increase the amount of smoking, then you're going to see a line that slowly moves upwards uh, vertically, and so you get a diagonal line moving up to the right. In this case, there is what we cause, call a positive relationship between smoking and mortality. With exercise, we see something different. 
Compared to a control group who is sedentary and does not exercise, the more an experimental group exercises, the more we move to the right on the horizontal axis, the lower will be the all-cause mortality. In this case, exercise decreases mortality, so the line is in fact a mirror image of what we saw with smoking. In this case, the line goes diagonally down instead of up. Now, what researchers have found is that at a certain amount of exercise, that all-cause mortality line stops going down and instead begins to return towards the zero mark on the y-axis. If you can visualize it in your mind, the line drops downward in a diagonal fashion and then begins to curve back up, but never comes all the way back up to the zero, so it looks essentially like a reverse or backwards J. This reverse J-curve is seen with other things as well. Alcohol, for example. We know that small to moderate amounts of alcohol confer health benefits, but that when you start to increase the amounts that you take, and if you increase the frequency, those benefits are lost, and eventually alcohol becomes detrimental to health. So in that case, rather than a reverse J, we actually see an actual J, because in that case, the mortality goes over the zero and becomes more positive like we saw on smoking. So we have an initial down and then an eventual up. So you don't get an actual reverse J, you get an actual J. Now, the consequences of the reverse J curve for exercise has implications principally in older athletes. In studies of older male athletes, we've seen that higher volume of exercise is associated with higher incidences of cardiac events when compared to those who exercised less. However, and I really need to emphasize this, it's extremely important to note that even in those men who exercised more, their rates of cardiac events were still lower than those who did not exercise at all. And this is the most important point of the reverse J-curve as it pertains to exercise. I don't want anyone going away from this segment thinking that exercise is dangerous if you do too much of it. Only that the benefits of exercise may not be quite as, as great for cardiac disease as they are when exercising less. Recently, Researchers in France and Switzerland wanted to know if this kind of relationship between higher volumes and intensities of exercise could also manifest as higher incidences in cardiac events even amongst the most elite of athletes, those who train at the highest volumes and intensities at a young age. To determine this, they looked at high-performing Olympic athletes from a variety of sports and performed robust internet searches to determine if any of them had publicly reported cardiac events of sudden cardiac death or arrhythmias. Now, let's be honest, methodology like this is not at all standard for this kind of research, but it has been employed successfully before, and the authors of the paper that came out of this was published recently in the journal Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise, and they argued that it was definitely a reasonable means by which to gather their data. Let's face it, athletes of this caliber are very much public figures, and cardiac events occurring in this population, whose average age was in their mid-20s, are very likely to be widely reported given how rare they are. And I guess I could argue that this assertion is pretty likely valid. On top of that, the authors did a pretty deep dive into other means in order to ensure that they would catch any, any major events that might have happened in this group. Overall, the researchers captured data on 2,471 athletes, half of whom were female. The athletes came from a host of different sports across both the Winter and Summer Olympics, and those sports were divided into categories, depending on what kind of physical demands they required. For example, skill sports included diving and ski jumping. Power sports included gymnastics, sprinting, figure skating, and alpine skiing, while the endurance sports included cycling, triathlon, cross-country skiing, and biathlon, biathlon being cross-country skiing with riflery, as opposed to what we think of as duathlon. Over a 12-year period, 15 cardiac events were identified within this cohort of high-performing athletes, giving a 0.61% rate of incidence. In other words, 0.61% occurrence of events over 12 years. The average age of the athletes who had these events was 29, so very young. 13 of the events were arrhythmias, while two were sudden cardiac, were sudden cardiac death, of whom one was resuscitated. The sudden cardiac deaths occurred in a cyclist and in a triathlete. Except for the two sudden cardiac deaths, all of the athletes with arrhythmias were treated and later cleared to resume their training and competitions. 
The incidence of events did not differ between men and women, but did dramatically differ among sport type. Endurance athletes were far more likely to suffer cardiac events than any other sport type, and cyclists and triathletes, alarmingly for us, had the highest propensity by far for these issues. In fact, among women, only triathletes had cardiac events. The authors attributed the higher risk to cyclists and triathletes, especially to several factors. Both of these sports have the highest training load and intensity compared to all other endurance sports evaluated. They also have the longest competitive seasons. Athlete mindset was invoked as well because previous research has shown that athletes from these two sports are, let's say, a little bit notorious for ignoring or minimizing symptoms or impairment in performance that can be attributed to cardiac issues. How often have we heard that people have suffered cardiac events in the swim of a triathlon only to find out later that, oh yeah, they were complaining of some shortness of breath or chest discomfort when they were training? This goes to that athlete mindset. This can lead to the progression of underlying structural problems if these kinds of symptoms are ignored, like cardiac remodeling and hypertrophy that often then result in dysrhythmias that can be fatal. Now, there are several important caveats that need to be considered in the interpreting of the results of this study. First, the event rate was exceedingly small, only two sudden cardiac deaths and a very small number of dysrhythmias out of 2,471 athletes. So it's really difficult to have a high degree of confidence in the conclusions when there is such a paucity of data to base them on. Still, 0.61% is significantly higher than we see in a comparable number of people the same age who aren't training and racing or performing in the Olympics. Second, this is a very specialized population of very elite, high-performing young athletes. Whether or not these results are generalizable to older age group athletes isn't entirely clear. Still, this paper is once again a cautionary tale that demonstrates the potential perils associated with excessive training at high intensity and calls out specifically the dangers related to cycling and triathlon for the reasons I mentioned before. Now, there is no question that both of these sports are attracting more and more older athletes into their ranks, and that this is a cohort that has an inherently higher risk for cardiac disease going in just because of older age. If excessive training truly does increase that risk even further, this would be very important to know. Now, the big unanswered question that is not really addressed in this study is, why is this happening? Why is exercise at higher intensity for longer periods of time less beneficial than lower volume, lower intensity exercise? This is still a subject of some debate, though there are some theories out there and some science to support them. For example, we know that long-term exercises at higher volumes and intensities is associated with remodeling of the heart itself, specifically with enlargement of the heart muscle, and that this can predispose to arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation or more dangerous ones related to the ventricles. This larger amount of muscle also requires more blood flow and oxygen, so is at higher risk of ischemia and potential for infarction or heart attack. Then there's just the idea that the kinds of stresses that are placed on the heart muscle over time associated with higher intensity and higher volume of exercise may itself cause some micro kind of damage to the heart, which results in scarring, which itself can result in these kinds of dysrhythmias. Still, for now, the take-home message needs to be that exercise alone remains overall a significant benefit and that you don't need to be turning it down in any way. Remember that exercising more isn't dangerous, it just might not be quite as beneficial as exercising less. And if you're a high-performing older age group athlete, you don't necessarily need to stop training in order to get those kinds of performances. You just need to do so with this in the back of your mind that you might not be getting the kinds of benefit as your lower-performing competitors. I think the biggest thing that we need to take away from this is how important it is to pay attention to your body for any signs or symptoms that things might be amiss, especially if you are one of these athletes who's training a lot harder and a lot more than other people, especially at an older age. And that is going to remain the best way to identify a problem before it manifests in a much more dangerous and potentially tragic way. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Or, of course, there's always the possibility of dropping it into the private Facebook group for the TriDoc Podcast. Just answer a couple of easy questions, I'll admit you into the group, and you can join the conversation there. Yeah! Woo! 
My guest on the podcast today is Scott Tyndall. He is a nutrition coach to professional triathletes and executives with more than 20 years of experience in professional sports. He's been an expert advisor to companies on nutrition product development and health optimization. He is a Performance Nutrition Advisory Board member at Ironman and the former head of performance nutrition for the Toronto Maple Leafs hockey team in the NHL. He's also worked with Team Oracle USA and Professional Rugby and is now the founder and CEO of a company called Fuel In, which offers a iOS and Android app that synchronizes with Training Peaks. And we'll talk a little bit about that during our conversation. But for now, I want to take a moment to thank Scott for joining me today on the TriDoc Podcast. Welcome, Scott. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And I had a chance to talk talk with Scott a couple of days ago. We kind of covered some basics about his philosophy on nutrition, and I think uh, that it's going to make for a very informative and entertaining conversation. So why don't we start right there, Scott? You've been doing this for a long time. You've worked with a lot of very high-performing athletes. What's your kind of like overall philosophy of managing nutrition for performance? Oh, that's that's such a broad question. I think firstly, just try and keep it simple. I think there is so much noise out there in in the media and social media in particular about what works and what doesn't. And I think when you break it down with athletes, it it should be a fairly simple process of um, using what we know actually works and cutting out a lot of, as I said, cutting out a lot of the noise. And when you refer to things that we know work, I know that that, for me, that's been basically the foundation of my podcast, because everybody will tell you they know what works. And then when I actually dig into the science, I find that what they say works is often not actually the case. So how do you, as a nutrition expert, as someone who's learned in this field, what do you kind of fall back on in order to really assess whether or not something works? Well, I think you've got to look at the research first and foremost and, and look at, you know, use the level of research as well that is going to support it. So looking at systematic reviews, meta-analysis first and foremost, and then going down peer-reviewed randomized controlled studies. And finally, I guess you're using some of the anecdotal and case studies and then your own personal experience to make those informed decisions. I think when we're talking about performance nutrition or sports nutrition, is there that delineation between health and performance? Because I think ultimately, when you start getting into some of performance nutrition, some of it could be considered quite unhealthy. You only have to look at carbohydrate intake, for instance. You wouldn't push that onto a a sedentary individual and aiming to consume, say, 120 grams of refined carbohydrates per hour if you're talking about improving health. So I think there is context as well that needs to be considered when talking about nutrition it's it's not just black and white and i think that's that for me is probably the biggest issue i'm i see and i'm sure you see is everyone's so black and white in the way in which they approach nutrition it's like it just isn't that way I love that. Context is so important. I've I've had a conversation recently with a couple of other nutritionists, and I was really amazed in talking to them in detail about how individualized their approach is to every athlete. And you're basically saying the same thing. Context is really what should be the the basis of forming a nutrition plan for anybody. And I'm fascinated, having worked with professionals in very different kinds of sports, What are some of the preconceived notions or preconceptions that you deal with from those athletes that you kind of have to work through in order to get them on the right track for their nutrition? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, professional athletes don't think that they have a better knowledge necessarily than the average person. And sometimes they're just as influenced by external companies who are throwing products at them and potentially money to push their products along. And so... I think, again, it comes down to education, educating the athlete on the principles. And to your point about, I think every athlete obviously is their own individual athlete, but there are principles that you can apply across sports nutrition that should be applicable to the majority. And then it's about refining it. Take protein, for instance. We know, obviously, the World Health Organization, they have their recommendation for protein consumption, which is to keep you alive, it is very different when you look through the research in terms of athletic performance. Now, where that number sits 
it's going to sit somewhere between 1.6 grams per kilo body weight and depending on what literature you read, could go up to three, three and a half grams without necessarily any adverse complications, depending, again, on the individual renal functions obviously going to come into that. But you can apply those principles to an athlete and then adjust based on what their individual's need may be. So protein, if we're talking hypertrophy, you're probably actually not having it that's super high protein intake. It's probably somewhere around 1.6, 1.7 grams per kilo body weight. Whereas an athlete, maybe an endurance athlete who has got a lot of high, high load, high volume, high intensity, they and they're also trying to keep weight down, you may actually bump protein up significantly above two grams per kilo body weight to help with recovery and, and satiation and whatnot. So there, there are those individual tweaks within the framework. I think that's probably the easiest way of thinking about it. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, given that, what are some of the things that you kind of rely on to gauge where someone is starting from and where you're trying to get them to? I think questionnaires are important. I think you you need to obviously get some feedback from the individual athlete and work out what their goals are and what their intentions are based around the program. So is it, for instance, are they looking to improve body composition? Are they potentially looking just to improve performance? Is there a little bit of both around that? Most athletes who come to us tend to want to improve body composition, whether that's right or wrong. I think using a DEXA scan is <clears throat> is very important. I think it's it's one of those areas where you can quantify body composition in a very meaningful manner. You can also obviously assess bone mineral density, which if we look at endurance athletes, especially female endurance athletes, I think bone, bone mineral density becomes a very important factor in this, which can lead the conversation then in terms of around body composition and low energy availability, chronic underfueling, and things like that if you do discover that a T-score is under, under what would be the optimal range. I'm curious, in your role with Ironman, has there been conversations at all about some of the, I mean, let's face it, there's been an unfortunate increase in the number of stress fractures in the last, say, five, six years among some of the pros and looking at the pros. I don't think it's too hard to put two and two together to recognize (laughs) that there's a significant amount of energy deficiency syndrome going on here, especially among some of the women. In your role as a a nutrition advisor with Ironman, has that been a conversation that's been had in order to try and, I don't know, have a discussion with the pros on this? It isn't anything that's been raised. I think whilst Ironman is its the professional body, I think each of the athletes sort of race under their own guise. I think it's something that could be raised. Um, Unfortunately, I work with a professional athlete who has suffered stress fractures and we we understand why that's occurring and there are, as anyone who has understood or worked with athletes who go through that process of low energy availability or REDS, it, there is a huge psychological element to it that usually predates any of their success as an athlete and it, it's such a, it's a bit of a black hole as you get down to it and and. When you work with these athletes and you see the struggle, the psychological struggle that they go through, which is very real, but and they also see the impact or the negative impact it's having on their body, it's still, you know, for someone like myself who doesn't go through that, it is hard to get your head around it at times and not understand why they're not fueling more to improve performance. And it, it is often until sort of the second, the third, potentially the fourth stress reaction or stress fracture that it's like, okay, enough is enough. I just wonder if it isn't up to Ironman or the PTO or someone as an organization to come out and address this head on, because I I think we're doing women a disservice in the sport if we don't start making this a much more open conversation. Look, I've had the same experience where the individual athlete was asking why is this happening like on social media and like, you know, we're trying to find the answers and I agree. The the answer is there. We know why it's occurring. It's just facing up to it. But again, that that's part of the healing process, isn't it? It's yeah. being able to admit what's going on and facing that and then hitting that head on and addressing it in that way. And sometimes that's the healing process of being able to 
actually acknowledge what is the truth behind what's causing these stress fractures. I mean, we know through look at the available evidence, go back to that question, what causes stress reactions and stress fracture? Yes, it's intensity, it's training load, but it's that lack of appropriate energy to allow bone formation and prevent bone resorption. And and something as simple as carbohydrates, if you look at the most recent research, small amounts of carbohydrates can have a very positive impact on bone formation and reducing bone bone resorption in the post-session window. And yet, if you look at what a lot of athletes do in order to restrict weight or reduce weight is restrict carbohydrates because it's the simple macronutrient to reduce. And so, again, it's that education on when do you apply a calorie deficit How do you apply that and for how long do you apply that in order to achieve potentially improvements in body composition without rising the health of the athlete? And it is a tricky, it is a tricky balance. Yeah. And it's, I think it's magnified by the fact that triathletes are generally bigger athletes than road cyclists or even dedicated runners. And Mm -hmm. yet they're trying to do both of those things. Yeah, And I know myself as a bigger athlete, I show up to these races and I say bigger athlete, but I'm still pretty small compared to a lot of my friends. And I show up to these races and I feel gargantuan and uh, the pressure, even on a male, I mean, I I feel it. And so I can only imagine what these pros are feeling. It's (laughs) it's remarkable to see a guy like Christian Blumenfeld, who looks very much like a normal human being and is doing what he's doing it gives me great hope and, and even daniela right daniela reef is not a, a tiny woman she's muscular she she's doing what she's doing and she doesn't look like she's she's wasting away or 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 you know under fueling in any way and and i'm hopeful that we'll see more <clears throat> and more of that yeah um, I, I think i think christian i've talked about this a lot like he looks like a, a center from a rugby team and it's great and you listen to any of the exercise physiologists or team or his personnel that work with him and it's all about feeding it's all about energy consumption and because his thing is about putting out the most amount of energy so therefore in order to put out the energy you need the energy and it's a pretty simple equation in that respect. Yeah. So, yeah, I love it. Yeah, it, look, you get the flip side of this. I, I'm currently working with Holly Lawrence, 70.3, and she's got the world champs coming up in St. George. And she said to me the other day, she said, I have never eaten so much food in my life. Like she was always restricting. And she's like, it is amazing how much food I'm eating now. Yet her body composition is improving and she, her performance and her mood is so much better. And so, like, she, she just is like, wow, maybe I've been doing this wrong for that many years. And it, it's simple adjustments to her program around nutrient timing, understanding when to use large amounts of carbohydrates versus smaller amounts, understanding that protein is a very important macronutrient and consuming a hell of a lot of it relative to her body size. And then utilizing fat as well without going overboard, but just understanding how to manipulate her diet to provide her with the maximum amount of energy intake, i.e. calories and food in the form of food, but still allow her to achieve her goals. So I think it's when it's done, and I'm not, I'm not saying I do it perfectly, but when it is done in a systematic way, I think you can have very, very positive effects on, on athletes' performance and their health. It, it's fascinating because you are echoing some of the sentiments that other nutritionists I've spoken to have said, that when they work with athletes and when they start working with them, they basically encourage a, a much higher <laughs> caloric intake than the athlete was taking before with a focus on the calories being good calories as opposed to maybe the, the lower quality foods they were taking previously. And the athletes recurrently talk about how they're not used to eating so much and yet they are so surprised that they're performing so much better and so surprised they're recovering so much better. And so I, I find myself continuously coming back to this this thing where athletes are constantly changing coaches because they want to find the best ways to train to get themselves to to be better and yet they don't seem to be putting in the same kind of diligence and attention to their nutrition which 
all the nutritionists I speak to say the same thing. When they work with athletes, the athletes are always giving them the same kind of positive feedback. And yet everybody acknowledges that nutrition is the fourth discipline. It's the thing that requires so much work. Why do you think that? I mean, look at Lionel. Lionel's a great example of somebody who had so much trouble with his nutrition admits it admits that he was doing screwing it all up and finally got with the right people and now is setting the world on fire yeah why do you think it is that these professional athletes are so resistant to working with a a good nutritionist and then listening to them look and and just look whether it's working with a nutritionist or a dietitian it the reality is jeff and i talked about this the other day with some athletes is it's not sexy it's it like the perception is it's not sexy and it's not sexy because it takes time and it takes effort. Like you get on a bike, you do a hard session with a coach and you're like, Oh God, that was hard, you know, but then you go and make a beautiful salad and you eat it with a piece of whether you're vegetarian or whether you're an omnivore with a beautiful piece of tofu or a beautiful steak. It, it doesn't quite bring the instant gratification that the world has now sort of succumbed to. Like it's, it takes time. And I, I will always say, like, if you got fat, it didn't happen overnight. So how can you expect to get lean again overnight? It takes time. It takes consistency. It takes effort. And unfortunately, a lot of people aren't prepared to put that effort in. They're happy to put the effort in on the bike, in the pool, on the road running, because there's that sort of hard, that I don't know, that sense of achievement when you're doing it. But eating really well and understanding that, it's just not that sexy. So a lot of people don't want to put the time into it. However, when they do do it and they do it well and they start to see those results through changes in habit formation, then they start to get on board and then they become like the, they become the, the absolute hero of the program and, and talk and to everyone about it. So... Yeah, and Lionel's a great example, isn't he? He he went from drinking, what, 27 bottles of Gatorade in a race or trying to do that and understanding why he had issues to now he's clearly got it dialed in. Whatever he's doing now, uh, he, he and it the results speak for themselves. He is a great athlete who is now managing and mastering his nutritional requirements and the results speak for themselves. So well yeah, done to uh, who he's working with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But now you and I talked the other day, we had a great conversation. And I want to kind of get back to it again today, because I think one of the things that you're kind of referencing is with, with training, we can easily monitor our uh, trajectory. But with nutrition, it's not as easy. You can get on the scale, but a lot of nutritionists don't like us using the scale. You and I discussed this idea of blood testing. Yeah. Can I just uh, say I like phys- the scale? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the scales are very useful. Look, especially real, the ones that measure your especially ones that measure your body fat percentage. I think that they are a useful tool to a to a certain extent, but I think that uh it shouldn't be the only metric. But anyways, you and I were discussing Yeah. Yeah. You and I were discussing the idea of blood testing <laughs> and, and we talked specifically about a tool like Inside Tracker. You believe that that has a role. Tell us about that. Yeah, look, uh, I think what I like about Inside Tracker and, and blood testing in particular is it creates a baseline. Now, we can, as you and I discussed, like what are we measuring here and what does it actually tell you and what is the relevance to the population that is being tested? And I think if we look at the athletic population, we look at triathletes in particular, what are we talking about? It is not normal what a triathlete is doing especially when we're talking about a 70.3 or Ironman. I think it's something like 2% of the world's population has completed a 70.3 or an Ironman. And it is, you're talking for the average person, five hours of at least of continuous exercise for a 70.3 and probably 11, 10 to 11 hours continuous exercise. So where do they sit on that continuum of health? And so where do I think, blood testing can be important. And I think the distinction, again, is we're not using blood to decipher a diet type. So we're not saying, right, you've got this type of blood and therefore you need to eat this type. It's not about that. It's looking at particular markers in their blood, i.e. we can talk about iron, for instance, like look at an iron panel and say, is that optimal for what this individual is trying to do? And now you're a doctor and I know you have your view on this. And where where do you sit on 
you know, something like iron, if we looked at iron, where, what is the range? The range for ferritin is 10, 10 to 232 nanograms per milliliter. Now, is someone who is at 10 within normal the same as someone who's at 200? Well, of course not. But, and that's not my, I think iron is probably not the best one to choose because I, I, as I think we both agreed the other day, I think iron, especially for women, not so much for men where it's, it's rarely a major issue, but for women, I think getting a baseline iron at some point during training is, is a very good idea. Where I take issue with Inside Tracker is it's got a host of other things on there that I think are not necessarily that useful. And you could get an iron panel done for a significantly less amount of money than Inside Tracker charges. Plus, there is all of the other recommendations that Inside Tracker throws at you that I don't think are necessarily important or useful. That being said, we discussed this idea that Inside Tracker narrows the range of normal and that makes it more likely that you are going to have an abnormal result on, on a lot of their indices. I agree with you that for athletes, it probably makes sense to narrow the ranges, especially for something like iron. So I, I think we're in agreement on that one. And for iron panels for women, I, I, I don't disagree. But I do kind of question about some of the other markers that they're looking at. Yeah, and just on the iron deficiency, I mean, again, if you, if you go through, there are, there are plenty of studies out there where males, whilst the incidence and the frequency of males being iron deficient is nowhere near as high as, as females, there is still a fairly high percentage of males who will either be iron deficient or iron anemic deficiency. Uh, I was just doing a quick read last night and just having a scout around and even uh, there was a a nice study, Canadian actually, uh, Canadian Academy of Sports Medicine. It was from 2015. Well, they measured athletes between 2009-2015 and at least one episode of iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia and 60% of female triathletes. Now, there was only 40, I think, 40 athletes assessed over this period of time, but 60% of the female triathletes, but 37% of the male triathletes had at least one incident. So I think it does occur in males, and it, it comes back to, again, like to that low energy availability in reds. Everyone just associates that with females, but <clears throat> it is present in males, and I think... I, I do see it where there are males under consuming fuel and probably deficient in certain essential vitamins and minerals and iron being one of those potentially that could be, you know, assessed and rectified if it is appropriate. Now, I, I get it, like going and self-administering iron supplements to yourself is probably not recommended either. You should be speaking to an expert if your blood test does show that you're low in hemoglobin, low in ferritin, then speak to a doctor and hopefully get it sorted. And I mean, the the management of that is fairly straightforward as far as I'm aware. Do you recommend alternate day dosing or do you recommend just every day? Oh, the problem with iron is it's so it's so hard, right? It's, it's not very bioavailable. Yeah. So you kind of have to give it every day if you want to actually replete iron stores. Well, the problem also is that it causes constipation and you get some other issues, but unless you're able to get enough of it in the diet as well. So yeah. if somebody eats meat, then I think you can do alternate day supplementation. But if, if they're vegetarian, even with leafy greens, it's, it's pretty tough. You generally have to do every day if you want to get their iron stores back up I mean, in any kind of rapid fashion. And again, like <clears throat> when you look at the, the athlete type, if they're a vegan or a vegetarian, those non-heme iron sources aren't going to be enough. And more often than right. not, these vegetarian vegan athletes are the ones that I see with low ferritin, low hemoglobin. They then are put on a heme iron supplement and lo and behold, they start to feel better. They start improving. Ferritin levels come up, hemoglobin comes up, hematocrit comes up, and they feel like a bull in a gate. I think in that sense, it can be really good. I Look, I think what Inside Tracker does well is the visual representation of trends over time as well. Now, I think when you look at it, I agree, like some of the, some of the, the ranges are pretty tight and they've probably done that intentionally. But I do like that they have attempted to split in some of those those markers which have these extreme ranges of what is normal from a very low, say, again, referring to ferritin, 10 to 230 or whatever it is, 
Like, I think splitting that out into what is insufficient, optimal, potentially hazardous, I think it makes sense. It's just where does that consensus come with what are those those levels? And I'm certain that there is always going to be disagreement from medical fraternity as to population versus gen pop. And, and I think maybe that's where they could go with it is what type of athlete are you and could you potentially alter the zones based on what the type of athlete is because that, that could have a positive impact on it as well. I think that's really fair and I'm I'm glad to have this conversation because I've been pretty negative or pretty down on Inside Tracker and it's good to hear an alternative viewpoint. I appreciate that. Yeah. I do want to give a few minutes to hear about Fuel In because I know that's something that you've been working hard on. So tell us a little bit about the app and what it does and who it's for. Yeah, Fuel In is actually it's only an iOS app. I know you said Android, and we would love oh, we would I'm love to have it. Hey, on listen, Android. I use an iPhone, so it's yeah. all good for me. <laughs> so what Fuel In is is um, it's a, a platform that syncs directly with Training Peaks, Today's Plan, and Final Surge. So if you are a coached athlete and your coach is providing your training platform through one of those platforms, what we do is sync with that so that we can see exactly what the training intensity is, the training duration, and what your week's training volume is and provide meals or provide nutritional advice based around the specificity of the day and the week. So rather than having a PDF, then that is theoretical, which is still valuable in terms of like you should think about eating this on this day and this day, we can actually tell you specifically the amount of carbohydrates, protein and fat and total calories required for that day and across the entire week to actually maximize performance. It is built around the concept of carbohydrate periodization. So again, based on the intensity of the session and the duration of the session would be the applicable amount of carbohydrates that we recommend for that. So that's broken down into a simple traffic light system, which is red for lower amounts of carbs, yellow for a moderate amount of carbs, and green for a higher amount of carbs. So it just makes it very visual, very simple for the athlete to say, okay, it's a red meal. I know I don't need to gorge on pasta and rice for this meal. I'm probably opting for, say, a leafy, leafy green salad with plenty of protein and then moving along that sort of continuum. And does it help with uh, nutrition plans for races? Yeah. So, well, I think the, the thing that I've found with triathletes in particular is so many athletes will get to about three weeks, two weeks before their race and go, okay, I need a plan now. And it's like, why haven't you been practicing your race nutrition throughout your entire training phase to, in order to understand what your carbohydrate capacity is, i.e. what, how much carbohydrates you consume, what type of products you can consume, go back to Lionel's <laughs> discussion, like, mm -hmm. was that occurring? Did he understand how much, like, though, that amount of Gatorade was going to negatively impact? I would say no. So pushing all that in and repeated testing in race pace type situations, I think is super important. From a hydration perspective, do you understand how much you sweat? Do you understand how much fluid you need to take in? Do you understand your body weight loss? Like they're all the things that are part of an effective race plan, but it's not like just writing a little plan at the end and going, right, you need to consume 30 grams of carbs every 20 minutes is going to actually be effective. In theory it is, but if you don't know how to execute that, then it's going to be a waste of time. So we work with coaches to really build in the applicable training of the gut and appropriate hydration strategies throughout the training block. So usually on weekends, they're practicing higher carbohydrate consumption. They're weighing themselves before and after sessions to understand fluid or body weight loss. They're recording how much fluid they were consuming, what types of products, and recording it all within the app. And then what that does is gradually provide them with the detail of what they would take into a race, i.e. on a bike, you comfortably consume 90 to 100 grams of carbs. You know that you've been using Cliff Blocks and Morton Gel, for instance. There's two, two very common products and potentially something like Precision Fuel on the bike as the liquid carb. When they get into the run, they've been practicing with Endurance Tap, Maple Syrup Shot, 
and that's all they use and they know they can consume one of those every 15 minutes and that gets them up to around 75 grams of carbs an hour. And so that's their plan. Well, we got a couple of Canadian references in there besides the <laughs> Toronto Maple Leafs. We got a Canadian study. We got maple syrup. This has been, as far as I'm concerned, a very successful interview. <laughs> I tell you what, Scott, that endurance tap is – I so endurance tap I do love, and I found it when I was at the Leafs because the guys were like, this stuff's really good. And I remember I had a shot of it, and I was like, that is delicious. And so well, I push, I I push endurance that. tap on a lot of athletes. And when they first try it, they're like, wow, this is incredible. I will never say no to maple syrup. No. Scott Tyndall, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Scott, as I mentioned, is a nutrition coach. He's been working with professional triathletes and executives. He's a nutrition advisory board member at Ironman and has a wealth of experience in all things related to nutrition for endurance and professional sports. And he is the CEO and founder of Fuel In for which I will have a link in the show notes. So go check that out. Scott, thank you again for joining me today on the Trotter Podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. And that's it for another episode. The Trotter Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns, I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the Tri-Doc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.